All right. Hey, good morning, Vaughn Forest. I am uh, Brett Moore, and I'm so glad to see you. Uh, really looking forward to this message and what God is going to say to us today. So if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that. And we're going to look at Luke's gospel, starting in chapter 6, verse 37. So go ahead and turn to Luke 6, 37. Uh, again, we are in the series, Misunderstood. Uh, Chad explained that in our intro video, what that means and what we're attempting to do and what we're asking God to say to us during this time. Uh, you know, we want to be intentionally thoughtful. Like we want to be people who uh, have an, more than just an opinion. We want to be informed by God's word as to how we should think and follow and live as Christians. And so we're borrowing this concept from Larry Osborne's book, uh, 10 Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe. And there's a tagline for this series, and the tagline says, Did Jesus Really Say That? And that's more than just a clever way of giving you a hint as to what we're trying to do. But that tagline is there for a reason. And so if you think back to the first temptation that was common to mankind, the first temptation in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, where Satan approaches Eve and he tempts her to, te uh, to eat from the tree, the, the way that he gets her uh, hook, line, and sinker, what he says to uh, God's first created woman is he asks her a question. He said, did God God really say? And so did God really say? Uh, here we are thousands of years later, generations later, and we're asking the same question. Like we're, we really want to know, did God really say that? Does God's word really say that? Is that what Jesus meant when we heard that phrase? That temptation is still there, and it's a temptation that the scriptures speak to. And so we started a few weeks ago, talked about faith, what it is, what it is not, what it does, what it doesn't do, does it fix everything. Uh, last week, Pastor Chad talked to you about how a valley, uh, maybe it does mean a wrong turn, maybe it doesn't. I thought Chad did an incredible job, and I'm very grateful for him and for the way that he uh, he carried the weight last week. And so today we're going to look at what I believe is the second most popular verse in the Bible. Like this might be up there. I mean, we all know that John 3, 16 is on the poster board that you hold up uh, and behind the end zone so you can get it on camera. Like John 3, 16 is the one that comes to mind when you say, what's the most well-known verse in the Bible? John 3, 16. You may not know the reference or the address for this verse, but I promise you that you know it, you've heard it. Uh, it's one of those verses in the Bible that even if you aren't a Christian, so you're here today, you're just checking things out. Maybe a friend brought you, you're checking things out online, whatever the case may be. Even if you aren't a Christian, Christian, you know this verse, and you've said this verse, and you want this verse to be true. We want these words to be true, even if we don't know what these words mean. So today's misunderstood idea is this, Christians shouldn't judge. So something you may not know about me is that I, I want you, uh, I want to be known. And so uh, my mentor, Ray Orland Jr., says it like this, that you can be impressive or you can be known, but the choice is yours to make and you have to choose. 
every single day. And I wanna be known. And so I want you guys to know me and I wanna tell you something about pastors and preachers that you may or may not know. But pastors and preachers have to be very intentional and careful about other pastors and preachers that we listen to. And that's a question that I get quite a lot is like, who, who do you like to listen to? What pastors do you like to listen to? What pastors do you like to read? Uh, and we can talk about that later. But pastors, preachers, we have to be very careful and intentional about who we listen to. Why? Because if we're not careful, we'll start to sound like them. Like we will actually pick up like their cadence and the way that they talk. We'll start to use their vocabulary. We'll even use their mannerisms. We will even pronounce words the way that he does. And this is not new. This is not just me. It might be a me problem. I don't know. But like, this is not just a, a modern phenomenon because like in the seventies, like didn't everybody kind of sound like Billy Graham? Like everybody kind of sounded the same in, in the 80s. Every pastor seemed to be doing his best Adrian Rogers impersonation. And then in the 90s, they all shifted to sound cool and from Southern California, like Greg Laurie. But, and here's what I also tell you, just because I want you to know me. But if you go online and you find there's audio recording of it, uh, but if you wanted to, you could find a relatively unknown pastor from Morristown, Tennessee, who after listening to too much John Mark Comer, uh, he actually pronounced it lit literally for like a week. That's how I said it. That's even like, it came out in a sermon. I said, literally. And then driving home from church, my, mo uh, my wife, <laughs> man, I hope we're recording this one. Let's publish that. We don't have time to unpack what that might mean, but, um, whoo. So you want to be known, huh? Okay. But she said, you don't say it literally. You literally say it literally. And I'm like, okay, understood. She's like, do you understand? I'm like, yes, ma'am, I do understand. So um, that's to my shame, but I wanna be known. So there you go. But uh, that's, that's really, I think, at the heart of, of this passage of scripture. It's not this idea of being known, but what's at the heart of this text that we're gonna look at is that there is a huge difference. There is a distinct difference between being able to pick up on somebody's mannerisms and imitate them versus really knowing who they are. There's a difference, like you could, if you wanted to, you could go online, you could find a really good sermon, you could copy it down word for word, and then you could go and preach that and you could make your accents and you could raise your voice and change your tone and move your hands and you can say it exactly the way that that pastor said it, but it wouldn't have the same power. Do you know why? Because your heart would not be in the same place. What we don't want as Jesus followers, is to be able to grasp merely intellectually what the Bible has to say. We want to know in our hearts what it means to live a transformed kind of life, to be driven from a kind of inside out change. And that heart change is what Jesus is after in Luke's gospel this morning. And so I hope you found Luke 6, 37. I wanna go ahead and read for us this morning. Reading these words of Jesus, he said, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? 
A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is God's word. I think we need to be honest. I think we have to have a a very honest conversation this morning because what I find fascinating is that the sins that I struggle with, and maybe maybe you're like this too, the sins that, that you struggle with, the sins that we find most unattractive, what we like the least about us, Isn't it interesting that the sins that we struggle with the most are the sins that we love to point out in others? Isn't it interesting? Like what we struggle with is what we're so easily able to see and notice in somebody else. I mean, you've heard the saying, right? It takes one to know one. It takes one to know one. And I think whoever said that is onto something. Because when I think about that saying, my mind is drawn back to the Old Testament, to one of the famous characters of the scriptures, and that's to, the, uh, to this man named David. Now, David began as a shepherd and then ended up as a king, and David's life has an incredible uh, narrative arc to it. There's so much to this man, but one of the most infamous parts of David's life is recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You have heard this sermon preached. You know exactly what the story goes, and so you know that at the time when kings were supposed to be at war, David was not. And so there this king is, not where he is supposed to be. And then he does what he absolutely should not be doing. And then he begins to orchestrate, not just covering up the adultery, but even the murder of the wife's husband that he committed adultery with. And it's at this point in the scripture, in the story, that 2 Samuel chapter 12 picks up because there's a prophet named Nathan. And prophets speak on behalf of God. And Nathan comes to David and he tells him this story. He's telling King David this story. Now, we don't know if this is a real story, but we know that David got the point. He tells the king there was a rich man and he knew a poor servant and the rich man was going to have company over for dinner. And so the rich man took the family pet of the poor servant, this prized valuable sheep, the only thing that this poor servant had. This rich king, he took that servant sheep and he served it for dinner just so he could impress his guests. And you know how the rest of the story goes. David is filled immediately with indignation. Like he is so angry that he demands justice. He thinks that Nathan is talking about an actual other person. And so he says, bring this person to me that they might die this day. And man, the irony just kind of seeps out of the scripture pages. I mean, hypocrisy is undeniable. I mean, and then in this brilliant turn of phrase, the prophet Nathan silences David's unrighteous indignation by saying, you are that man. Like David, what are you doing? Like what's, like, like that's you. David, that's you. What I'm saying is that 
the thing that gets on your nerves, the thing that ticks me off, the thing that rubs us the wrong way, I think it probably says more about us than we'd really like to admit. I mean, if, 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 it's, if it's just me, somebody tell me after the service, but man, th- think of the standard of quality. Think of the thing that you quietly, you're never gonna say it out loud, you're never gonna tell anybody, but in your own mind, think of that standard that you hold people to. Like I can think of it, it this is, again, like this is, this is me raising my hand saying, I do this every single day. I mean, I want, I am an expert in remembering the fruit of the spirit that I expect people to treat me with on a consistent basis. I do. I want to be treated with love that's unconditional and joy that's unmistakable and peace that's unshakable. But church family, again, like this is me raising my hand and saying, I hold people to a standard that I can't meet. Like I can't pass my own test. And I wonder if you can either. And the reason that that's a problem is explained to us by the great reformer, Martin Luther. This is what he said. I love this line. He said, it is certainly true that we cannot show as great of mercy to our neighbor as God has to us. But it is the true work of the devil that we do the very opposite of mercy, which is a sure sign that there is not a grain of mercy in us. You know what that means? It means that a merciful father has merciful children. Like if you wanted to kind of sum up and summarize what this sermon is all about, you could say that forgiven people forgive people. Like we should be the most merciful people on the planet because we have received how great of mercy from our heavenly father. But I have questions. Like when I read this passage and when I read quotes like that, questions begin to pop up in my mind, questions like this. So are you telling me that I can never judge? Like I'm never allowed to do this? Are Christians as a Jesus follower, am I just supposed to sit back and never have an opinion, never make a comment, just be rolled over, steamrolled, never push back, even if it seems like there's an obvious narrative, that there's an obvious agenda and it's being pushed and it's being promoted and I'm just supposed to be a sweet little Jesus follower and be like, do whatever you want. Like I'm not allowed to say what you're doing, what you're saying, how you're living, how you're leading is in direct conflict with my biblical worldview. Those are great questions to ask. I wonder if you're asking those questions even in your mind right now. And the answer to those questions is to ask another question, which is this, what was Jesus like? What was Jesus like in the scriptures? I believe that it would be inaccurate to think that Jesus never made distinctions. That's wrong. Like we see evidence in the scriptures that Jesus made distinctions. This is all over the gospels. Jesus in Luke 13, he condemns a tree that bears no fruit. Luke 14, Jesus told stories of how you should seek the lower seat and that you should give the seat of honor, the place of honor to guests. 
Matthew chapter 7, it was Jesus who said, the way is wide that leads to destruction. So it would seem from reading the stories and the words of Jesus that he had no problem making distinctions. But we're told not to judge. I mean, this feels like a tension. Is this a problem to solve or is this a tension to manage? Like what is going on here? And what I love, like this, what I love about Jesus is that if you follow him around the gospels and listen as he's telling this story to the people who are following him, Jesus tells a story to explain what he means. And that's so helpful to know because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, does not wish to leave us in chaotic mystery. Like the goal of Jesus is not to just get you to say yes and not explain what he means, to just nod your head and go, well, you said it, so I guess I have to believe it. No, he told stories so that we, we could understand what he was getting at. And in verses 41 and 42, he does just that. He tells them a story. He tells them the story about this man who has a log in his own eye. And that's not like, there's probably not a guy with a real log in his eye. But he tells a story of a man with a log in his eye and he's trying to like walk up to his friend and go, like you have like right a speck. And of course he says, like deal with your stuff first. Like you have something there. Like deal, deal with what's going on in your own path of vision, what's keeping you from seeing. Then you can help your brother out. And I love what this passage reminds me of. So uh, I told you before, I have two daughters and one of the things we love to do all the time, we like to, to build Lego sets. And uh, Annie and I love to put Legos together and um, we're weird about it. So I know I, I said this uh, in the earlier service and I said, uh, this is the right way to put Legos together. And I was instantly corrected in the foyer. So I, you know, I understand that this is not how normal people put Legos together, that this is a problem that I need to pray through. But um, so the way we put Legos together is that we open the box and we take the instructions out and we leaf through them because we wanna see like, okay, well, here's some steps. Here's what we're going for. Here's how we can see that we can make uh, you know, progress. And then we take all the packets, the little plastic bags of Legos and we pour them all out on the table and we start organizing everything by color. And so we separate all the pieces of Legos into different colors. And then we arrange the different groupings of the colored Legos into different sizes. And so we're arranging the largest to smallest of all the different Lego pieces. And we do this because it makes it easier because you're able to not go searching for all the different pieces just so that you can put step 42 together and then move on to step 43. And there's a method that we use. And we don't just look at the box and maybe you do this because you're like liberated and free, but like, we well, don't just look at the box and take all the Legos out and go, let's just freestyle it. Let's just kind of see like, you know, maybe we should just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us in this moment. No, we don't do that. Like we're following the directions. There's a method. And what I think the Bible is saying the Bible is not saying in this passage of text that Christians shouldn't judge. I think what this text is telling us is that there is a method to your judgment, that time and order matters. And time matters because, number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. Time matters because summarizing people, it's convenient 
but it's questionable. Summarizing people is convenient, but it's questionable. What does summarizing people mean? It means to sum people up. It means to come to a quick conclusion. It means to notice what you see and what you notice as, like this is the most obvious thing about you. This is the clearest feature about you. This is the loudest part of your personality. This is your personality profile. We don't have time for that. And then you would just kind of make up your own story. Like you don't know everything about them, you know one thing about them. And so you take the one thing you know about them and then you fill in all the blank space with what conclusion you've come to. And you do it quickly and it's convenient. But I have questions. I have questions because it happens really fast, but those fast conclusions that you jump to can often have devastating relational consequences. What do I mean? I mean that if you are quickly summarizing people, summing them up, you might find yourself using phrases like this. I know the type. You know, like you use a phrase to describe somebody like, okay, quickly, he's, he's kind of like, kind of guy who would, like she's the kind of girl who is always, like they're, they're the kind of person who it's always this, it's always that. Like that's a phrase that we use to kind of sum people up, to explain them away quickly. Maybe you don't say that, but after you hear something that somebody else has said or your wife comes home and she says, you won't believe what my boss said to me. Your husband comes home and says, you won't believe what my director said to me. And you go, well, that's typical. Like that, that is, that's very typical. And I think it's interesting that when we use the phrase, that's typical, we roll our eyes. And it's not to communicate how typical it is. It's so that we don't have to make eye contact with the person that we're saying that to, because I think even our DNA and biology knows that's wrong. Maybe you don't say that, but you, after hearing a story, you quietly nod your head and you go, it sounds about right. I am not surprised. This is my shocked face. This is how we sum people up. And what we're doing when we use those kinds of words is that we are conveniently putting people into neat little boxes, boxes that are so explainable, conveniently definable, and that require little to no effort or nuance on our parts. We look at one side, one aspect of a person. We figure we know everything there is to know about them and we don't give them any more or any further opportunity to explain. And the reason that that is problematic for us as Christ followers is twofold. The first reason is that every person, every single person is an image bearer. Every person, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And from there, every single strand of DNA that's passed down from one generation to the next is marked with a divine heritage. And that divine heritage is common to all humanity. No one gets left out of bearing some kind of resemblance to their creator God. Here's what that means for you and me. You've never met anybody who was not created in the image of God. You've never locked eyes with somebody who's not created in the image of God. You've never gossiped about anybody who is not created in the image of God. You've never been hurt by, you've never been deceived by, you've never been let down by 
anybody who is not created in the image of God. You've never met him. Not just that, in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we read, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the same God who created us in his image gave us a way to be made new. And that word Paul uses here to his letter to the church at Corinth, that word is all-inclusive. Anyone means anyone. That means anyone who bears the name of Christ, anyone who is a Jesus follower, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation, anyone, and by anyone, I mean anyone, is a new creation. So every person is an image bearer and every person is in progress. Colossians 3.10 Paul writes, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are being, present tense, we are being renewed in knowledge. You know what that means? That means that being made new takes time. And we don't like that. And the reason The reason we don't like that is because Christians like events. We love events. We love the moment that Jesus steps out of heaven and into our hearts. We love the moment when in in baptism, we say that we are following Jesus and that we want to publicly declare that an inside change deserves an outside expression. We love watching and hearing the stories of how people were miraculously healed. We love hearing that the prodigal had come home and that the marriage is now restored and that the sick have been made well. We love those stories of transformation, but we like the moment of transformation, not the journey of transformation. Because Christians love events, but we have a real hard time with processes. But being made new is a process. Being transformed is a process. You are saved in a moment, but you are sanctified over a lifetime. You are being conformed into the image of Christ Jesus. Similar verse that Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter four, verse 24, he says, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What that means is that we're not who we used to be, but we're not quite yet who we want to be. What all this means is that people who follow Jesus should be more fluent in encouragement than criticism. People who know Christ as Savior, we should be more fluent in the language of encouragement than criticism because the sin of pride can take many forms. And ultimately, our critical words and our critical thoughts, they spring from a heart that is sick with pride. But I wanna look closely at what Jesus very clearly outlines as behavior not befitting a Christian. Because in this passage, it's not that Jesus is forbidding the use of judgment what he is talking about in the context of this passage is a kind of judgment. 
He is forbidding a kind of judgment that lacks self-awareness. And self-awareness is more powerful than self-assuredness. Take notes. Self-awareness is more powerful than self-assurance. Now, we have gotten to know each other some over the past few weeks, and uh, maybe you noticed this about me. I'm told by my bride of 17 years, I am told that I am not a subtle man. And that's, that's true. Like, I, I, I am not a subtle man. I am an all-in guy. Uh, my friend Lucas is here with me this weekend, and he, he spent about five hours in the car with me yesterday, and he can testify that there is no such thing as stage Brett. Like, this is just, it's just me. This is just who I am. And that I am, I am so passionate. I'm a passionate person. I want to know everything there is to know about something. And I love telling, I, the, the goal of my life is to explain to you what God meant when he sent his son Jesus into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. I am passionate about the gospel. I'm not subtle about the gospel. But the thing about not being a subtle person is that I'm not subtle about anything. And that's good as a preacher. But try being married to that. I mean, try, try, try being co-workers with that. Try being friends with that. And it's that kind of mindset of being so sure. I can be so sure, regardless if I'm right or wrong, I'm sure. And there is a danger to that kind of mindset. And Jesus speaks to that kind of mindset in this passage. He gives us a kind of uh, picture. Look at the examples of the pictures that he gives. He says a blind man can't lead a blind man. Easy enough. He says a disciple is not above his teacher. What is Jesus getting at? I don't think Jesus is telling us to avoid using discernment or good judgment. And the reason I know that is because it's not just about time, it's also about the order. And the order matters. Because to lead anyone, you need to first see clearly. And to be a disciple, you need to first be taught. And you can't stand at the front of the classroom and learn. What is the posture that Jesus is leading us to? What does he want from us? What's the goal? You should be asking that question of every sermon that you listen to. Every sermon should lead you to a kind and type of response. Eugene Peterson said of the Bible that the question that you should ask after reading any verse of Scripture is not, what does that mean, but how can I obey that? Like the Scriptures demand a response from you. So what is it that Jesus wants us to get out of this passage? I think he wants humility. He wants humility because you don't want to be judged and you don't want to be condemned and you want fair treatment. What do you need? You need humility. And humility is tricky. It's tough. Because very rarely have I ever believed someone when they say, I'm doing really good on the humble thing. I, it didn't take that long. And yeah, Conquering my, conquering my pride and becoming a humble person, yeah, I'm kind of crushing it in terms of humility. I don't know how you're doing, but, you know, you need, you need a posture of humility. 
And it's in humility that we need to relook at a passage that we, we started the morning with. So we began uh, talking about King David. King David had a, a, a long life. He had a, a large variety of things happening. The narrative arc to David's life is all over the place. Uh, we were talking about King David at really the worst moment of his life. I mean, this is the low point. I mean, can you imagine the worst thing about you being known and told to you in your face and you don't get it to the point where they have to say, no, really, I'm talking about you here. I mean, I don't know that it gets more humiliating than that. I don't know if it gets worse than that for a guy. But we're looking at him in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12 at the worst moment of his life. And man, that's so easy to do. Like that, that first like, opening illustration of David, that is, that's so easy to make that connection. Right, like you could have taught that. Like you could have preached that part of the sermon and been totally fine. It's easy to point out the hypocrisy and the error in his ways, especially because we don't even know him. Like not a person in here has a relationship with King David of the Bible. He's not here to defend himself and nobody in the room is gonna push back and try to defend him and say, actually, I think what David did was right and okay. I think Nathan was being a little harsh. Like nobody's doing that in that part of the story. Isn't it easy isn't it convenient? Doesn't it take a little bit of self-assuredness to point out the speck in this brother's eye? Isn't it easy to summarize him down to a talking point and just figure out that the summary of this character is that we need to not be hypocritical? And for the sake of my own integrity, I want to look at David in another way. I want to examine him from another angle. I want to give him a chance to speak at another moment in his life and at another time. And I wonder if there's wisdom in doing that with people. I think there is. David wrote a good amount of the Psalms. And Psalm 139 is a Psalm of David with words that I think are for us this morning. And we ask that question, right? Like, how do I respond? Like, what do I do? So what? Like, what is there for me to do with all this information today? I think Psalm 139 is the kind of words that if we put these into practice, if we put these words into action, it'll change our lives. These words could give us and give you the kind of humility that we need to live lives that are honoring to Jesus. Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24 say this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We're gonna leave that up for a, a couple of minutes. But could we ask that by the love of our heavenly Father and the blood of his son Jesus, and by the comfort of the Spirit of God, under the authority of the Word of God, could we ask God even this morning to use a hammer and a chisel and carve out of our hearts and carve out of our lives every single thing that doesn't look and sound and feel like Jesus? I mean, should Christians judge? Yes, at times. There's an order. But who should Christians judge first? I say we have to start by looking in the mirror. 
I want you to stand to your feet. I want you to bow your heads and pray with me. Go ahead right now as we transition to a time of worship and the band's gonna come out. Because we do need to respond. But we're gonna respond first the way that the scriptures invite us to. Just with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to, maybe this morning, you need to say these words back to God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Take a good hard look at me. God, we pass by each other about once a week or maybe once or twice during the week if I'm lucky. But right now, I'm slowing down enough to say to you, look deeply, intently, use the microscope, look down into my heart, know me. And not just that, don't, don't stop with my heart, God, try my thoughts. Because there, there are things that go on in my head. There are, there are phrases, there's ideas, there's, there's darkness in my head that nobody knows about, but I want you to know about it. Could you say, God, after searching my heart and searching my thoughts, would you examine my life and see if there's any grievous way in me? What that means is, God, is there something that I'm doing that is grieving you? that unlike the faith displayed by the centurion in Luke chapter seven, that you don't marvel at my faith, but it's a mystery as to where my faith has gone. Is there any way that I'm using my hands and my words and my life and my energy, my eyes, is there any way that I'm dishonoring and displeasing and grieving you? And then after you've allowed God to search your heart, your mind and your ways. You don't wanna be left there. You don't wanna be left just having been judged and told, hey, this is the result. This is what the law describes of you. This is what the law labels you. The law reveals, but there's only one thing that can heal and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. And we know where God leads that he leads in the way of everlasting, meaning that all of those parts of your heart and the thoughts in your mind and the ways of your hands and your actions, that all of those belong on the cross where they were paid for by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as gospel people, we know that the way of life everlasting is back to the gospel over and over again to be made new because we are in progress. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would attach our word, your word to our hearts. Would you lead us in the way of life everlasting and help us to respond appropriately, appropriately to you in praise and worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.